Operating in a, in a rural area, if you will, is like having three colored balls on a pool table and you've got the one cue ball and you strike the cue ball. Chances are it, it may never touch anything else. Operating in a city, again with your density, is like having seven racks of the colored balls on the table and you strike the cue ball and you have no idea what the ultimate consequences are gonna be when they all start to impact each other. Every window, every balcony, every manhole cover, every uh, doorway, um, every corner in a street uh, is a possible firing position. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I had the chance to speak to Dr. Russell Glenn. Dr. Glenn is the Senior Advisor for Plans and Policy to the Deputy Chief of Staff, G2, of the Army's Training and Doctrine Command. He's also one of the foremost thinkers on urban warfare. Now, there's much about fighting in cities that remains pretty hotly debated. We don't have total consensus on definitions of some of the terms involved. There's disagreement about whether we need to spend more money on equipment or on training for urban operations. Even whether we'll ever actually have to fight in large cities is the subject of debate. And yet, all of that uncertainty is exactly why we need to keep thinking and talking about the massive challenges posed by cities as operating environments. And a great place to start is this conversation with Dr. Glenn. Before we get into that, I just want to send a special thanks to the Army's Mad Scientist Initiative. They have been a fantastic team to work with in linking us up with a few of the guests we featured, including Dr. Glenn. They're doing some really important work, so if you're interested, I'd highly recommend connecting with them on Twitter and LinkedIn, where they're very active. And one quick final note, what you hear on this podcast are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of any agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's talk urban warfare with Dr. Russell Glenn. Dr. Russell Glenn, uh, thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk about urban warfare. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your role is uh, with respect to urban warfare at, at TRADOC and then kind of how you came to it as a subject matter? Sure. Well, um, let's do it in reverse order then. So I was active duty Army. It was the summer of 1993. Uh, I was just coming from five years in Europe, three with the Third Armored Division, including a tour during the first Gulf War, and then two years as exchange officer with the Royal School of Military Engineering. I was assigned as the senior Army Fellow at RAND in Santa Monica, California. And a colleague of mine there, uh, Dr. Randy Steeb, was my de facto sponsor. So we spoke before I started driving cross country, and he said, uh, well, you can pretty much study anything you want for the year that you're here, as long as it's of interest to uh, the, the military and to RAND. So I drove cross country with uh, my wife and the two boys and thought about it and thought, well, urban operations is something that we really haven't focused on very much in the, uh, the Army. And um, we probably should do that because the world is getting increasingly urbanized. Got to Rand in August of 1993, passed that on to Randy. He came back uh, a week or so later and said, sorry, nobody's interested. You'll have to find something else to do. So I started working on some other projects. And of course, a few weeks later, Black Hawk Down, October 3 and 4, 1993, takes place. Uh, Randy comes back to me a 
few days afterwards and says, well, the Army's changed its mind. They're interested all of a sudden. So for that entire year, I focused on urban operations, just a, a general look, actually, trying to get into it as much depth as I could. And a, uh, a study, Combat and Hell, uh, mm -hmm. came out of that. I was very fortunate to, to be allowed to complete and finish the study, even though I had returned to the, the Army after that. So went back into the, the Army, uh, decided to retire, sent out the Christmas cards, and Rand uh, asked me to come back because Urban was getting more and more interesting to the Army and the other services. So did that with them for about a dozen years, uh, headed a team with some outstanding individuals, uh, one of whom now is working security for the United Nations, another works for a company up uh, north of Sacramento. Um, virtually all of them have left Rand with a couple of exceptions. Moved on to another company doing the same kind of work uh, when a good friend of mine helped stand it up and then took an offer to go teach in um, Australia at the Australian National University. But throughout all this, I'm continuing to do studies on urban, on counterinsurgency. If you think about it, the two obviously uh, run together to some extent. I mean, urban spans the entire spectrum of conflict. So, um, Mr. Tom Greco, who heads up the G2 at TRADOC, uh, knew I was interested in uh, coming back to the States, had a first grandchild born, my parents were getting up there. So asked me to come back, um, was happy to do so, joined a good crew at uh, G2 and TRADOC, and given General Milley's interest in Urban and many others in the military as well, I've been asked to take the lead for G2. So that uh, involves working with the Asymmetric Warfare Group as a put together the Army's training strategy for dense urban terrain and megacities, uh, dealing with ARCIC, part of TRADOC, as it um, looks into the future with regard to urban, the centers of excellence just across the board, everything that the Army's doing, and by extension, Department of Defense, and, and hopefully, whole of government, because it should be a whole of government enterprise, uh, we deal with them as well. So here we are at Mad Scientist today. We heard about urban yesterday. There is a RDECOM get together a workshop looking at subterranean and dense urban terrain all of this week, which I'll join uh, at the conclusion of this, spending time over there on, on Thursday and Friday. So essentially anything that has to do with urban operations, uh, dense urban terrain, megacities, and the three of those are different, uh, is something that I, amongst many others in the Army, are interested in so that we can better prepare the service and our soldiers to deal with that environment, regardless of what the mission might be. I want to ask you about sort of the timeline of that focus when, you know, when we went from nobody really caring all that much to here. But first, uh, can you talk about, you mentioned dense urban terrain and megacities. Can you talk about what those distinctions are? Because I think that is something that confuses sure. a lot of people. Sure. Uh, and there was a piece that I did for Small Wars Journal, Small Wars Journal probably six months ago now, uh, called 10 Million is Not Enough. And I first got into that. Uh, in that article. And there's another article that the uh, Asymmetric Warfare Group journal will be publishing supposedly in the September timeframe. But the, the bottom line is there is some conflation of those three terms, which is a, is a disturbing because they are not the same. Urban operations, uh, the best definition I've found, and there are many, comes from a, uh, a annual publication by Demographia, and it looks at urbanization around the world. And uh, in a nutshell, or to paraphrase, it defines an urban area as that geographical entity that looked at at night uh, would be 
lit up when you took an aircraft photo or a uh, uh, satellite photo. Now, of course, it's not a perfect definition. Parts of Pyongyang and other cities are not well lit up, but it, it is perhaps the most readily accessible intellectually definition without getting too much into the weeds and cluttering it with unnecessary information. So I like that because it's, uh, it's something that immediately you can get in your mind's eye what you're talking about. It also avoids defining urban areas purely in terms of their political distinctions because we know the, the megacity of Los Angeles is far, far larger than the political entity, the city of Los Angeles. The population of the megacity is roughly three times what it is of the political entity. And you find the same thing elsewhere. Uh, in Jakarta, if you look at just the polit political entity of Jakarta, it ranks uh, 2021, 20, 25 as far as the most populous city in the world. If you look at the megacity of Jakarta, it covers three, four different provinces to some extent. Uh, like Los Angeles, it includes other entities, as does Los Angeles, Burbank, and the Port of Los Angeles, and Santa Monica, et cetera. That's the megacity, of course. And so you're looking at Jakarta now being the second largest urban area, megacity, in the world when you start to include what that definition entails, which is a contiguous area that is illuminated at night. So that's your, your urban area. And of course, although it's uh, contiguous, there's a great deal of open space. Think of um, Central Park in New York or any other city. You've got some areas that are far denser than others. Now, two subsets, dense urban terrain and megacities are both subsets of urban areas. Dense urban terrain, and this is uh, paraphrasing a definition that, um, that uh, I've come up with, as is the one for megacities. Dense urban terrain is, are those areas that are uh, particularly crowded in terms of physical structures, man-made physical structures, and human population. So uh, you can think of the urban area writ large, and then you think of areas like downtown Manhattan where you've got skyscrapers uh, with tremendous density of, of spaces, subterranean uh, surface and, and above the ground. Um, obviously, you have millions of people in a very small area. Uh, it would also include slums, uh, so it doesn't need to be high-rise buildings. It could also include subterranean, uh, especially in areas like, say, uh, London uh, with the tube or in Tokyo where in Shijuku Station you have several layers of subterranean areas, uh, certainly at rush hour and even otherwise, densely packed in terms of both man-made structures and uh, population. And there are other parts. I mean, the uh, old city of um, the older parts of Mosul, for example, all of these would be dense urban terrain. And it's not a fine line where it's black and white, and you don't need to define it that way. And then you come to megacities, where the common definition is it's a city of more than 10 million. But that's a rather specious definition, easy to grasp, but what makes a city of 9.5 million not a megacity and a city of 12? What's the big difference? So the definition that, um, that I prefer there, and, and AWG is, is using this in their publication as well, um, is a city that has extraordinary density of population, uh, density of, of um, or has areas, I should say. Uh, it's an extraordinary number uh, of, of individuals. It has extraordinary number of, um, of man-made structures. It has extraordinary interconnectedness and uh, other forms or other elements as well, but perhaps the key 
is that it also has extraordinary influence beyond its immediate local area. So uh, obviously all cities have a symbiotic relationship with the rural areas, the smaller urban areas that are around them. But a megacity uh, is not just a local entity, but it has at least national, if not supranational, say regional impact, and uh, quite likely worldwide impact. I mean, if you think about the consequences of uh, the 9-11 attacks on New York and what the reverberations were for that around the world. So you now have cities that don't necessarily have to be a population of 10 million. Singapore is a good example, but it has all those other elements. It has great interconnectedness with regard to trade and communications. It certainly has a considerable number of, of uh, individuals. I would say, if I recall correctly, it's about 6 million, give or take. And that includes areas that are not only in Singapore, but also nearby Malaya. Um, and, and it has uh, impacts that reach out in the economic realm and the political realm, uh, certainly regional and, and worldwide as well. So you'll have some cities that are well over 10 million, say in the interior of China, that really don't have much impact beyond uh, their immediate surrounds. So I would not include those in megacities, but I would include others like Singapore that may not touch that 10 million mark, but they do have that other interconnectedness, influence, and characteristics that make it uh, truly a world, certainly a super regional, if not a world city, as far as influence. Okay. Uh, I, I want to come back to kind of the timeline. You, t you said that in the early 90s, you were basically told nobody really cares about this. And then October 93, Mogadishu. Uh, has the trajectory since then been linear? Are we at a point now where there's, if not unanimity, at least consensus that this matters? And uh, have there been other examples like Mogadishu that have um, offered kind of touch points that are inflection points that have increased people's attention? Uh, interesting question. Uh, interesting too when you ask a former engineer here as far as whether it's exponential or whether it's linear. It um, Originally there was, I would say you could define it as exponential growth in the interest after uh, Mogadishu. And that was greatly because the chief of staff of the Army at that time, General Gordon Sullivan, and also leadership in the Marine Corps realized just how important this was going to be. And so in a uh, short period of time, certainly by large bureaucratic standards, you had a new doctrine that was put out um, at the service level. You had new doctrine that was put out at the joint level. You had all sorts of uh, studies that were being done by master's students at uh, CGSC, the other staff colleges, um, second year students in SAMS and, and those institutions, war colleges, think tanks were doing a, a good bit of work, including um, what members of uh, my team worked on. So there was a period there uh, working toward uh, early 2000s where there was a tremendous amount of interest and uh, the Marine Corps, in fact, uh, wanted to take the lead on writing the, the joint doctrine, and they stepped forward to do that. It then tailed off when, um, after 9-11 because we had other, other foci. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we weren't concerned with it, that we didn't train to it. Obviously, we had far too much experience in it if you uh, look at all the combat that our, our men and women were involved in. But still, while uh, perhaps it wasn't receiving the same degree of attention, there was still great interest because of the influences of the cities that we were dealing with, Kabul, Baghdad, Kandahar, et cetera. But the focus was primarily tactical. 
whereas previously it had been predominantly tactical, but there was recognition that we needed to look at the operational strategic impacts. And then I would say, and this is rough, about um, five years ago, perhaps a bit more, uh, there was a loss of interest, quite frankly. And it, it bothered me because if you look back after World War II, where we had considerable jungle warfare experience due to the fighting in the Pacific, we allowed that to atrophy. Uh, I guess we thought that we had the experience in the ranks, so we didn't need to worry about it. Well, then, uh, of course, we get into Vietnam uh, about 20 years after that, and we find that, unsurprisingly, that expertise is virtually gone because most of the individuals who had fought in World War II had moved on. I was uh, concerned that the same thing was going to happen with our urban expertise, both in the combat and otherwise. Um, and that was even more of a concern because, of course, this is the period 2008 is generally cited as the year when over half the world um, started to live in cities. And, of course, it's increasing beyond that right now. Uh, and so it is safe to say that our operations are going to inevitably involve activities in cities. Even if you don't have a combat operation in a city, if you have to deploy into a country, you're going to be going through an A pod or a C pod that's going to be urbanized. Uh, so at a minimum, you're having to deal with the civilian population, you're having to deal with traffic congestion, you may well have security issues that you, you have to deal with because uh, you're vulnerable there. There's all sorts of the density of firing positions, the density of eyes to collect intelligence are greater there than any place else. So I um, was, was very much relieved uh, and glad to see that General Milley and others have now said, we need to pay attention to this. Now, uh, there's been a bit of a tug of war. First of all, we were interested in megacities undefined at that point or still considered just 10 million. Uh, then it was dense urban terrain, uh, also undefined, but um, obviously involving other than uh, just megacities. But there is still, as I said, a, a difficulty in that people are conflating urban terrain with dense urban terrain with megacities. And we need to be careful because uh, urban operations and dense urban terrain cover the entire spectrum of conflict, but the focus of our doctrine and the focus of most of the thinking is tactical. Uh, we do need to do tactical thinking, but we need to recognize the operational and strategic as well. You don't have to be dealing with a megacity in order to have operational strategic consequences, but if you do recognize that megacities need to focus on that as well as the tactical, then the the lessons that you learn, the issues that you need to cover will percolate down and apply to smaller urban areas as well. So it is vital that we not just focus too greatly on the tactical, which has been the tendency over the last 20 to 25 years, but we recognize what those impacts are at the operational strategic levels. I think when, when most people uh, in uniform think about what we used to call MOUT, military operations and urban trains, they think exactly that. It's tactical. It's learning how to clear rooms. And that's sort of uh, the paradigm through which they, they think about this stuff. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that you, that you talk about. And they might face, at the tactical level, they might face a lot of the challenges, which then have implications that sort of reverberate mm -hmm. out into the operational and strategic levels. Um, can, you, can you give a few more examples of some of the unique, you talked about density of um, intelligence collection, um, 
interactions with civilian population, what are some of the other unique challenges that, uh, that urban areas pose? Okay. Well, it's uh, way back when I first started looking at this for Rand, I, I tried to put myself in the shoes of, of a military commander that all of a sudden finds himself assigned some mission in a city. Maybe it's a NEO, maybe it's a, a post-disaster relief, maybe it's a combat operation. And, and I can imagine myself being in those boots and thinking, how do I even start? I mean, you're standing here in the street, you're looking at high rises on one side, you're looking at suburban areas here, you've got a park someplace else. Um, and so I thought that one readily graspable concept was density. Um, if you if you look at a city, generally you're looking at more in the way of density, more individuals per unit space, and of course that again is is a space that's above ground, below ground, and surface. Uh, more density of potential firing positions, every window, every balcony, every manhole cover, every uh, doorway, um, every corner in a street uh, is a possible firing position. Certainly a greater density of avenues of approach and mobility corridors. Uh, greater density of communications means, which can be a good thing, because if you're dealing in an environment where you uh, hope that the civilian population, or you're trying to recruit portions of the civilian population to help you gain intelligence, then you've got a tremendous density of eyes that can see, and certainly nowadays, ways to communicate. Uh, it's no longer just being able to go to the local policeman or get a hold of a soldier or go to a phone booth. Now you've got the ubiquitous cell phone. It helps you in that regard. So in general, you can think of things in terms of, of greater density. Now, how is that going to influence your operation? Well, it depends upon what your mission is and what your operation is. But that uh, does give you something to, to grab hold of and distinguish between urban operations, whether it's uh, any kind of urban terrain, and operations in, in other terrain that may have increased densities in some of those, but not in all the areas that an urban area will. Sure. When you, and maybe the, maybe when you first started looking into this, uh, what were some of the, uh, and through today, what are some of the historical examples that kind of help you frame uh, mm -hmm. the challenge? Uh, well, the uh, men and women on my team, uh, we agreed that you need to look at history from the beginning. You can go back to ancient history and look at uh, how some of the, the sieges ended uh, because uh, somebody was clever enough or somebody inside the city turned traitor and talked about where the water tunnel came in or where there was a subterranean passageway. But uh, of greater interest were the, the battles of, of World War II uh, because they gave you some concept of just what the challenge was going to be uh, if you're looking at combat. Uh, what sort of concerns do you have with regard to non-combatants? Uh, what types of munitions work better than others if you're trying to uh, blow a hole in a building? What do you need to avoid at the tactical level? Uh, you very quickly learn reading Chuikov about Stalingrad or reading some of the histories about Manila and fighting in 1945. You don't want to move through the streets. You want to move through walls. Um, you'd rather dash across the street from one building where you have a mouse hole to another then have to walk up the street because not only are you vulnerable to all of that, those densities of firing positions, but every time you cross an intersection, you now can be engaged from four directions at surface level 
and many more directions when you start to think about supersurface level or even subterranean. Uh, so the World War II uh, was a good start. Hui uh, was something of a turning point in the sense that it was 23 years after the Second World War. Uh, we lost, I should remember this, uh, we lost, I want to say, about 150 killed, and that number, you'd have to check that. The uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam lost around 400, and uh, I believe the, the estimate for the number of civilian casualties is, is 5,800, which gives you an idea of just how disproportionately the non-combatants can suffer. Now, some of those estimated it 2,000, it depends who you listen to, were assassinations uh, where the NVA and the VC came in, uh, grabbed hold of people who were working for the government that they had targeted, and, and they killed them and put them in ditches. But there were still a lot of non-combatants that were killed because they were just unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time, and one of the other side's uh, firepower um, led to their deaths. And of course, I'm only talking KIA here, so you can imagine the casualties in all three of those categories uh, were much higher. But the, the other thing about Huey is that uh, the way that we broke the back of the defense was bringing Antos forward, which were a, uh, a tracked vehicle that had six 106 millimeter guns on it, um, virtually unarmored, however. So we had tanks that would pull forward, uh, they would uh, fire, get the heads of the enemy down, bring the Antos forward, which uh, had a very effective round for blowing a hole in the building. They also had a 50 caliber um, sniper, not a sniper round, but a targeting round that they could fire so they could be more accurate than the tank could be at the, in, the, in that day and age. Uh, and we also used a lot of CS gas. So Huey is, is interesting from the perspective of, it shows us that we still may need to use an awful lot of firepower Perhaps we need to reconsider portions of our chemical weapons agreements. Not that we ever want to cast aside the prohibitions against such horrific uh, weapons as mustard or sarin or whatever, but if you've got and can design and train uh, using a chemical weapon that would allow you to incapacitate both the adversary and the civilian um, and not have to go in and, and just kill anybody, or, or, or level a building, I should say, or, or fire a weapon, uh, knowing that it could well kill anybody inside the building, and you don't know if they're non-combatants in there or not, um, then perhaps we need to, to go back and look at whether or not there are positive uh, chemical weapons that could actually work to the betterment of uh, the welfare of non-combatants. Um, the other thing about Hue is, of course, 23 years after World War II, perhaps we were still less concerned about non-combatant casualties than we are now, which is 50 years beyond Hue, and uh, uh, obviously three quarters of a century after or more after um, uh, World War II. So that is not so much a pivot point as one where it you begin to ponder what are the differences between then and now. Um, we fought in, in um, Fallujah twice in 2004. The second time, most of the population had departed, so we could use heavy weaponry more so than we otherwise would have. Uh, if we had to fight in a city today where the non-combatant population could not depart, 
and we're taking high casualty numbers in, in our ranks and coalition ranks, given the technologies that we have right now, uh, the hard choice is gonna have to be made. Uh, is the mission worth continuing knowing that we're going to lose a lot of soldiers? Uh, is it worth continuing knowing that non-combatants are gonna suffer disproportionate casualties if we, if we loosen the rules of engagement? Um, so the more recent battles are sobering in the sense of uh, we realize that we've only been able to use virtually unrestricted firepower when most of the civilians had left. Of course, there are other countries that did not. Uh, the Russians in, in Grozny uh, virtually used unrestrained firepower. Um, although only in small urban areas, the Sri Lankan government and armed forces against the Tamil Tigers used uh, virtually unrestricted uh, firepower. So um, it, it can be done, but we are not uh, the Russian government, nor are we the Sri Lankan government. Uh, we uh, have a greater concern for non-combatants, whether they are Americans or otherwise. You mentioned earlier um, the development uh, in the 90s, I believe, of doctrine uh, for urban operations, joint doctrine. Uh, so you were king for a day and you've got a pot of money, but it's a limited pot of money. How do you divvy that up between doctrine development, uh, training, and equipment, and maybe organization? Well, where, where do you think the solution lies, or what balance of those things? Well, being king for a day doesn't help very much because uh, you can't get too much accomplished. That's like the, <laughs> the movie where you've got a million dollars that you need to spend. Or Brewster's you, millions. You know. So, um, and that also skews the relationship, because ideally, you would have doctrine, uh, and doctrine would influence what you purchase in the way of equipment. Uh, it would influence how you conduct your training. It would influence your force structure. Uh, but of course, it doesn't work that way in real life. Doctrine influences those, but in, at the same time is influenced in turn by each of those as well as operations in the field. I would, um, I think that I would definitely allocate some of that money toward the operational strategic consequences of operating in urban areas. We do not have a good grasp of that. We don't exercise that regularly. Um, and it's extraordinarily difficult to determine what the second, third, and higher order effects are. Um, so I would, uh, would want to spend some money on the doctrine for that. I would also want to spend some money on, on the training for that. The technology side, um, I would like to see a way of incapacitating uh, individuals in such a way that you could then separate the wheat from the chaff and go in and, and get the bad guys and uh, not have the high numbers of casualties that we do. And I understand that, the, number one, that's a, uh, an unlikely thing to happen because even though chemical weapons agreements were primarily post-World War I or um, you know, the better part of, if not a century ago, uh, it's just too sensitive a subject for, for some to touch on. They're also dangerous. You know, the, uh, the Russians tried to use gas when the Chechens took over a theater in Moscow and, and did so with terrible consequences because they really didn't understand uh, the, the problems uh, of using that particular weapon, is what it was, a non-lethal weapon, but it had lethal consequences because it was misused in that case. Um, so I would, I would definitely focus on the operational strategic. I would focus on ways that we could reduce 
non-combatant casualties. Um, I would uh, continue to develop our modeling and simulations capabilities. We were advancing fairly well in that direction, both in the tactical realm, but also uh, starting to look at the sorts of modeling and simulations capabilities we needed to train at the operational strategic levels. And that, um, the money that was invested in that tailed off, again, no surprise, back in the early 2000s. So right now, other than individual player games, we don't really have good capabilities where you could have large numbers of non-combatants, uh, large units operating in a city that are going to move around realistically, that aren't going to be able to walk through walls or, or do these other things that are artificial. Uh, we certainly don't have a uh, modeling and simulation capability that's sophisticated enough to look at all the second and third and higher order effects. A good example of that was in 1990-1991, um, the, uh, the bombing of Baghdad. We were very careful not to bomb medical facilities because we didn't want to deprive the non-combatants, the civilians, uh, of those facilities. Uh, we were very careful not to, to damage power plants uh, in such a way that it would take years to recover. So we didn't destroy the large generators that would take years to replace. We, put, we dropped shaft and shorted out the, the power plants. We did strike uh, fuel depots and all. So while we had all these good ideas and the first order effect, uh, what happened was that even with their backup generators, the hospitals couldn't function because they couldn't get the fuel for the backup generators. The doctors and the nurses and the, the janitors and everybody else that was needed to support them couldn't get to work because the uh, transportation system was completely down because there was no electrical power, there was no, no fuel. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing that you would hope that you'd be able to war game beforehand. And of course, that's really only a, a second order effect. It's uh, operating in a, in a rural area, if you will, is like having three colored balls on a pool table and you've got the one cue ball and you strike the cue ball. Chances are it, it may never touch anything else. Operating in a city, again with your density, is like having seven racks of the colored balls on the table and you strike the cue ball and you have no idea what the ultimate consequences are going to be when they all start to impact each other. That's a great analogy. Um, you mentioned training, uh, simulations. Um, can you talk about, my, my colleague, Major John Spencer, recently had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and he had this uh, quote in there that I, that I found interesting, which was, uh, we train for deserts in the desert. We don't truck a bunch of sand into the forest. We train for jungles in the jungle. We don't build a little greenhouse and call that sufficient. Um, but we're training for cities in sometimes, you know, small areas that are supposed to replicate buildings with this couple stacked connexes, things like that. You have individual units at the division and brigade level, I think, that have, have created some of their own institutions sort of. But I think the best facility we have is Muscatatuck in Indiana. But it's still doesn't come anywhere near to replicating the density in terms of people, in terms of structures, in terms of sensors, those types of things. Um, do we need something like that? Or can that void be filled with modeling and simulations? Uh, I think the answer is a combination of the two. Of course, John's comment, while true, um, I'm sure he's well aware of this, 
The difference is you can train in the desert and you can train in the jungle or the woods without really bothering anybody else. You can't do that training in a city. Mm -hmm. So the ideal situation would be to train in an actual built-up urban area. And that occurred in World War II in London. In bombed-out areas, there were portions of the city that were used for training, preparing soldiers to go across the channel and fight in Northwest Europe. Um, it's, you need both the modeling and simulation and you need the live training, and they need to be able to complement each other. Now, uh, and this is me, this is my personal opinion here. Um, I have found in the past, back in the 1990s, when we started building facilities like Shugart Gordon down in Fort Polk, named after, of course, the two Medal of Honor winners who lost their lives in Mogadishu, uh, Muscatatuck does have a, a very good capability, but, um, its limited size is such that you can't really train a large unit there. And I found that in the past, even though a city can consume a unit very, very quickly, uh, that inevitably when you looked at a training area, somebody would say at first glance, you could train a battalion in there or you could train a brigade in there. Uh, and the people who ran the training site and the people actually had run through that found that no, it was an echelon below what it seemed to, to be. And that's because uh, you might be able to cram a battalion into a, a training area, but then you've got the artificiality of completely open flanks. Um, you need to be able to maneuver in a city. You need to be able to get some, some distance between you and the adversary. You don't, uh, you don't take, attack a machine gun nest by moving 15 meters over to the left. You try to do a sweep that's perhaps hundreds of meters or you know, kilometers uh, in order to get at it if you have the space. Well, the same thing occurs in, in our uh, urban training sites. They just are not large enough to be able to allow us to do that. They, they lack the, um, the dense urban terrain that you should incorporate in that. Uh, you know, how many have, if they, have, if they have a subterranean facility, that's great, but generally it's one layer. Um, and it's, it's probably nothing more than a utility tunnel or maybe a, a mock subway station. Uh, virtually none of them have high-rise buildings there, there's one being built in uh, Germany. It's, a, it's an impressive site called Schnaugersburg. Um, it'll be ready to go, fully instrumented. I think it's targeted for 2021. Um, the OIC who took me through that um, believes that it uh, can handle a battle group, uh, equivalent of a battalion task force. And I think that's probably a pretty good call. Now, there's lots of space around it, so you could use a, other elements of a, of a BCT, um, a brigade combat team, to isolate it in the open area, but you just can't get all the vehicles, all the individuals, and still have realistic training. That's my personal opinion. Um, so what do we need to do? We do need to enhance our, our training sites to have more in the way of dense areas like slums, uh, high-rise buildings, at least a, a block or two, such that you're going to have the challenges that, that you would uh, have in an actual city. Um, and it'd be more building takedown and securing the immediate vicinity than it would be actually dealing with something like Manhattan, where you'd have to replicate two or three or four. Um, and Manhattan's a poor example because we're not going to be doing combat operations there, but you might well be in other cities. And even you don't need to be in a megacity to have some considerable dense urban terrain. Uh, so we do need to have some live capability in that regard. But I, I would argue that um, the most you're going to be able to afford realistically is a battalion task force. And even that's going to be very expensive. 
So what we need to do is, um, as was the case when I used to train with Third Armored Division in Europe, we would have one battalion in the box, and then you would replicate the uh, remainder of the brigade, or even you could have the division playing as well, through modeling and simulation that had units going on, uh, conducting operations to the right and left. I think that gives you the capability to have realistic training that's affordable in the live realm, but you can also exercise your commanders at an echelon or two above and bring in, if you've got good modeling and simulation, bring in the, uh, the operational strategic consequences at the same time that your soldiers and your, your battalions having to deal with the, the tactical consequences and the tactical challenges at the, uh, live, in the live training. That's fascinating. Uh, for any listeners that ha haven't read it, I think Combat in Hell is a foundational sort of work that if you really want to kind of try to start to get your head around what's a pretty pretty major challenge, um, you, you, could, you could do a lot worse than starting there, I think. So, uh, Dr. Glenn, thank you very much. Yeah, a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, just a quick reminder that if you like this podcast or our other podcast series, The Spear, which is all about the combat experience, be sure to give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again.